tune. Oh, baby. Did you have a little drink in a bottle? It's like a Bear Grylls documentary, isn't it? <laughs> Us trudging through forgotten lands. <laughs> the forgotten lands of wild, wild terrain. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I took a stroll with novelist Dorno Porter in London's Hyde Park. Dawn lives in LA now, so she was over here on a visit and desperately missing her dog's meatloaf and puffin. How brilliant are those names, by the way? So I felt it was only right to get her a doggy fix for a date with Raymond. And it was total love at first sight. I was almost a little bit jealous. Dawn has a lot to recommend her. She's very engaging and warm and funny, but she's also totally obsessed by animals, as is her husband, the actor Chris O'Dowd. So it was really lovely and moving hearing about their shared pet history, as well as so much else about her life. I want to also say her book Cat Lady is out now, and it's a brilliant story about defying labels and living the life you want, so I thoroughly urge you to give it a read. Enough of me. Let's hand over to the woman herself. Here's Dawn and Raymond. Baby. It's a little poo-poo. Looks like it. Sweet baby. What a bonnet. Oh, my God. Well, I could say the same, Dawn. Thanks. I need to cut my fringe. I, I realised that I might, my fringe has gone the millimetre too far. Oh, Dawn. Look at that. Come here. Sorry. Was he complaining? I mean, my default setting is always the... <laughs> also great hair. <laughs> Hello. We've met some people who like the dog. That's a real babe magnet. <laughs> Uh, bye bye. I'll just put his lead on, Dawn. Hang on. I think I it might be leads only. You know when people come over to you when you've got a cute dog and they've got kids and they're just desperate for some entertainment for their kids <laughs> and you almost get stuck with the child? And you're like, dude, I know my dog's cute, but I'm not here. I'm not your nanny. <laughs> go. Go now. <laughs> no, just me. <laughs> I know. I have felt that. On a well, not- <laughs> well, when you're on a walk without your kids and you just seem to gather other people's kids... It's not what I'm out here for, guys. Well, that's the thing, is that he is... I sometimes... I've sent him in, though, quite a few times. If I see a kid crying on the street, I'm so confident of his ability to turn that frown upside down yeah. that I kind of... I get really affronted if it doesn't work. Right. And I look at the child and I think, well, obviously, behavioural yeah, problems. Just a it? cold heart. <laughs> that child's going nowhere. <laughs> Come here, Ray. But you know when you um, kids whose parents clearly don't like animals and they're just desperate, desperate to touch your dog, and you kind of look at their parents and say, "Why are you so cruel? Why are you denying this child animals?" I've got. I'm so obsessed by him, though, Dora. I know you'll relate to this. Yeah. Because you're. All, I think you're probably more obsessed by animals than me. I am pretty. Which obsessed. is why, why I was kind of. <clears throat> you had me well before hello. <laughs> And um, if someone doesn't, isn't sufficiently blown away by him, just walking down the street, I actually, I might say something out loud. I'll say, don't worry, we're obviously not dog people. <laughs> don't let it get to you, little one. Um, no, my um, beloved potato who died earlier this year, he was the kind of dog where people would slow down their cars and stop and have to cuddle him and stroke him and you'd... I, we'd take him everywhere with us and you'd find him on someone's lap at a party and that person would be feeling very special because of the way that he made you feel. He was one of those. And if I ever, on the rare occasion, 
encountered someone who didn't have that reaction to him, I was like, what would it take for you to feel? How, how can you not love this animal? He was just adorable. Well, I want to talk about lovely potato. So I'm with the wonderful Dorno Porter. I'm here with Raymond and we're in Hyde Park. And we're here, this isn't your home. You don't live in Hyde Park. No, it isn't, but we used to live um, kind of locally to here. We just sold our house in the last month, actually. And um, so Hyde Park would be our dog walk. And Chris would come with our dog. Potato every morning, do a good hour-long stomp around Hyde Park. I love it. And we should say, for anyone who doesn't know, that's Chris O'Dowd, who's Dawn's husband. And you you were telling me about Potato earlier, because that was your family dog. Well, it was your dog. You guys got it when you kind of not long after you'd first met. Yeah, we got Potato about a year into our relationship. We were living out in LA, and Chris and I didn't know each other that well. I think pretty fresh. But I was just craving a dog, and so I suggested that we fostered. So we fostered Potato, um, who wasn't called, he was called Simba when we fostered him. And that night we went out for dinner and we were so excited about the fact that we were gonna pick up this dog to foster the next morning. And we were wondering what we could call him and we just kept ordering potato dishes because that's what we love. And so let's call him Potato. <laughs> and so we took him home the next day and almost immediately knew that it was gonna be very challenging to give him back. Mm-hmm. And um, so after a few weeks, of a lot of back and forth because Chris was really nervous about the responsibility of having a dog, which is absolutely right. Um, <laughs> you won't heal that. Well, do you know what? I already had a cat that I was ferrying no. around the world with me. And so it was kind of a situation where Chris had to be 100% on board with having a dog because I was 100% like the cat one. So it really did need to be his decision. And um, I remember the day no. that he said that we had to take him back because he needed to be adopted by somebody. And Chris just said, just go for a walk because you can't be the one to take him back. So I was just in absolute bits. And um, and so I went for a walk and I said, walking back down the hill, I could see Chris outside the um, pet shop on his phone. Potato was a rescue, like, you know, the pet shops kind of have them in there. And um, I could see him on the phone. So I just kind of stood back. And then he got off the phone and I walked up to him and he saw me and Chris just went, let's go get our guy. And we just went in and adopted him. And this dog, Potato, needed so much love. He had terrible separation anxiety. It was it was like we were just thrown into parenting and loved it. Absolutely loved it until he died very suddenly in January and absolutely tore us apart. And it's just still horrific. Um, But he was a real one in a million. Feel very lucky. Just feel so lucky that we had him at all. I'm so, um, I'm so sad that you lost. I know. I mean, you know it's coming, don't you, with pets? There's nothing you can do about it. You just, like when the cat died, it was very sudden, but she was in my arms and it was, you know, it was everything that you would want. And then, um, but he was just, I don't want to go into the details of what happened, if you don't mind, but I just, um, it was just, it was, it was not supposed to have happened and it was very sudden and it absolutely shattered us. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's just a very real, very real grief. Well, it's something that you cover in your brilliant book. I mean, I loved it for so many reasons. I'm a huge fan of your writing anyway, but I think the themes in this really appeal to me. I don't know if you can wonder why. I mean, it's not a cat. Hello, sweetheart. You're like a little pussy cat, aren't you? You're so Dawn, I, I think he is like a cat. Yeah. You see, I think I am a cat lady. Right. I couldn't really cope with a big Labrador or 
Well, that's um, the thing about small dogs is they are that they are somewhere in the vicinity of cat. Great, it's, yeah. it's definitely my my parents always used to say they always had border collies, and they always used to say how they didn't like small dogs. Um, look at that dog trying to get a cameo on your podcast. <laughs> so some we, people will do anything. It's embarrassing. I know. They're so desperate. <laughs> my my parents were like, we don't like small dogs. They're, they're all yappy, and they were just kind of uh, you know they just really generalised about yeah. small dogs. Yeah. And then Potato is kind of medium-sized, but verging on small, kind of almost kind of a tall Jack Russell. And he completely stole their hearts. They were like, okay, this is an incredible dog. And so I see little dogs like this now. I never thought I would have a small one, but we just rescued a dog who is, she's somewhere between Jack Russell, Spaniel and Chihuahua, but she's gonna be small like a Chihuahua. I'm like, did you even live in Hollywood for 15 years if you don't come home with a Chihuahua? That's why I was, I never thought I'd have one. But since I've had a small dog, I now see small dogs completely differently and love them, and he is just delicious. Well, I got him, that's what partly why I loved your book, full disclosure, was, um, it, and I should tell, because keep saying your book, that's no good to you. So do you want to formally introduce your book to us and, and the themes of it and... Well, my book is called Cat Lady inspired by me <laughs> it's absolutely a cat lady but after losing my cat Lulu in 2020 and then I wanted to write a book about pet grief because it was so devastating and I loved my cat and I'd like to challenge the stereotype of the cat lady and then embrace it because I am a crazy cat lady proudly but then just as I as I was writing the book kind of near the beginning of the whole process potato died very suddenly and so I was grieving hard throughout yeah, writing yeah. this very unexpectedly I mean you, you know um, I thought I already had enough material to write um, to write with when the cat died and then I was literally launched back into it all again as I was writing the book but I think um, the book is about many things but one theme is pet grief and I just don't I don't know if um, it gets the attention that yeah. it deserves because it I... can totally rip you apart Well, I want to talk more about your book, but I want to go back to your childhood dogs and your experiences, really your origin story. So, you grew up, you were born in Scotland? or I was born in Scotland, up in Alexandria, and um, when I was in... Oh, look, there's the serpentine, lovely. You always know where you are when you see the water. I, when I was around one, my mum and dad got divorced. And so my mum moved with my sister and I down to Guernsey, where her family was. So I've lived in Guernsey, it very much feels like home. Scotland was somewhere that we went in the holidays, but Guernsey was where I grew up. Because your dad's from dad's, Scotland. Yeah, yeah, dad's still up in Scotland. So Scottish. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm, very, I'm very proud of my Scottish roots. It's very, two very different worlds that I was split between as a child. Guernsey um, to, you know, my dad was a hotelier and owned bars and restaurants in Scotland and just in the hospitality trade, which was entirely different to what I was doing in Guernsey, but all great. And you were, um, you had the performing gene, I feel, from a pretty young age, didn't you? Yeah, I think so. I, I, was, I was a bit of a show-off. They, I, I just really, really loved attention when I was growing up. <laughs> Can I just say, much do. <laughs> I love people that admit that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's something so liberating. And well, just... I think the word, like, this kind of insult of, like, you're such yeah. an attention seeker. I'm like, and? Why is that a terrible thing? That I'm, I want to be 
noticed and to, you know, that was how I used to feel. It's kind of, it fizzles off a lot as you get older, that kind of, well, attention gets a bit exhausting after a while. You actually just, like, would rather not have much attention. A little bit is wonderful, but the amount that I used to crave was just like, God, how, how, you know, it's just, you couldn't be in a room with people just being a normal person. I to just try and make everyone laugh all the time. It just must have been so annoying. I don't, I don't do that so much anymore. Actually, I'm saying that, and I, I don't know if that's true. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, the very cold psychology thing, and I'm sure you've heard this, people would say, well, you lost your mum at a young age. Yeah. And that... There's some connection to that. It's a hundred percent connected. And my sister kind of went the other way. She, you know, she didn't want attention, which is another, you know, absolute like result of losing a mother. But I was desperate for that. I was desperate for people to like make me feel the way that a mother would make you feel, and just to notice me and appreciate me and love me. And also, I was surrounded by a lot of sad people. And I don't want to make anyone sadder by saying I'm sad, so I would, you know, roly-poly into the room and jump up in jazz hands and try and make everyone laugh. <laughs> kind of took on the, the jester role. Did you feel that then? You're sort of feeling, I need to make the atmosphere better. Or you don't want to be the one to make it worse. And um, yes, absolutely, I remember feeling that. And there's just no coincidence that... I, I, I like to think whether my mum had died or not, I'd still be the same person in a way and still probably have wanted to do the same things. I think even before I knew she was ill, I loved being, you know, the centre of attention, but it definitely got ramped up after she died. Yeah. It was just very much, I just very much remember just thinking, um, I just want to make everyone happy because that's easier to be around. And you, um, you moved, you and your sister, you lived with your grandparents. Yeah, so when my mum moved to Guernsey, we moved in with my grandparents. And so when she died, I was still living there. And then, so when she died in our in the bedroom that later became our bedroom for the next three years, mm-hmm. um, we then my grandparents just got too old, and we had kind of strange moments where I was um, I was supposed to be going to the cinema with a boy. Bearing in mind we're like nine, ten, and his dad was like right in command to the governor on going to like a very respectable family, lovely people. They'd invited me to go to the cinema with their son Richard. And um, I was, they came to pick me up and my gran just wouldn't let me go because she said, no, boys will try and do things to her when she's watching the movie and boys do this to girls. And, and so the, the mother knew my auntie and called her and said, look, Jane, I think Florence is having a bit of a breakdown about Dawn leaving the house. And um, so my auntie kind of came round and said, listen, Flo, everything's all right. And, you know, I know the family and she's safe and I was able to go to the cinema. But I think my aunt and uncle realised at that time that as my sister and I were getting older, my sister was, you know, 12, Mm. and that leaving us with our grandparents just wasn't going to work. And so at that point, that was when it was decided that we'd go and live with my aunt and uncle. And I was heartbroken for my gran because it was very sad. And I remember her crying, telling us in bed, it's time for you to go and live with Jane and Tony. But I also remember feeling really excited because my aunt and uncle that was a happier house and they had animals they had uh, two cats dogs geese ducks tortoise it's really fun and I loved it there I found animals to me when I was a kid were my grandparents didn't have any 
I used to go and stay with my aunt and uncle at the weekend and I would just sit with the dogs, sit with the cats for hours and I would talk to them. I'd go for, you know, Guernsey was very kind of safe back then so I'd go for long, long cliff walks with the dogs and I would just spend hours with them. And I was the like, collies you had? Yeah, we had a, they always had board, uh, border collies but there was also a bearded collie called Acre um, that was their son's dog but they ended up having and Acre was my just the love of my life and I used to walk down to the beach and just sit with her and just talk to her for hours I used to ride my bike and she'd run alongside me we were just together all the time Dawn, and, um, can yeah. I just say what do you, how is this we've got um, some swans here oh, yeah. with Raymond I mean I feel you know a bit about animals yeah. but how do you envisage this meeting going well, I mean, he seems pretty chill. I think, the, I think the swans are so used to the dogs, as long as they don't go out to them and bark at them. See, Potato would chase them, which was always terrible. Um, yes, should we give it a go? I think these swans have seen it all. They've been, my son, Valentine, comes here and he sees just like some ducks or swans just resting and he just runs into the middle of it. And people sitting on the benches, eating their lunch, just get like whacked in the face by a thousand feathers and wings. And so I've got my, I'm used to children, so dogs are actually a lot calmer in this situation. I mean, swans are apparently quite vicious. They always scare me a bit, but surely, hello, sweetheart. You were so brave. You were so brave. You just went up to the swan. I love your hair. And it is hair, it's not fur, it's hair. So, you were telling me about Guernsey? Yeah, so the animals. I just yeah. love the animals. Yeah. And they had, um, they had Siamese cats and dogs, and I just thought they were absolutely brilliant. I loved them so much. So, as soon as I left home, went to university, and then when I got to move to London, I was like, right, I'm going to get a cat. And my parents were like, Dawn, you don't understand the responsibility, you can't do this. And I got my cat Lulu when I was about 24 and dedicated my life to her. Travelled everywhere with her. I took her everywhere. Turning up to people's houses, going home for Christmas, cat in a box. And Lulu and I just were like two homeless people just kind of sofa surfing for years. It was awesome. Well, do you think there was also that sense... I really understand that. I think you're possibly trying to create your own family as well and your own sense of a home and... Because it's quite unusual to have that responsibility when you're that It was age. so unusual. Like, it was my friends that I lived with at the time, we'd talk about her like she was our child. But I suddenly had this, you know, I couldn't just kind of spend the night out. I couldn't just go away for the weekend. I had to be really responsible. Mm. And I think a cat, obviously, you can, you've got way more freedom than a dog, but it definitely is your first experience of, like, being responsible for something else when you've left home. But I really enjoyed it. I really loved, um, I loved keeping her alive. I, was, I, have, I had times when I was so poor and I was so broke and I couldn't afford to feed myself. But I would, like Lilu had no idea there was always a bowl of biscuits on the floor and it gave me such a sense of pride when I was like feeling just I was achieving nothing. And, but I was somehow managing to kind of, you know, keep this cat flea free. Yeah. with a clean litter box and a, and a bowl of biscuits. And I was just, it was just a, lo a lovely, lovely part of my life. They just, I think if you're an animal lover, then the responsibility of animals isn't such a big deal. If you suddenly find yourself with an animal, but you're not really an animal person, it's very stressful. But she was a Siamese cat, so she was hard work. She's like, she, she sounded like someone was being murdered <laughs> and, and just was very demanding would, um, you know, just have very emotional reactions to not being with me. 
So if I had to have someone look after if I was working or going away or something like that, I would come back and she would punish me. She'd pee on my pillow, um, scream through the night. Where and, have you been? And jealous, like so jealous. Oh, she was awful. People, and also, you know, when you've got a, a cat like that, I think Siamese cats are beautiful. I, I now only rescue because, but when I got Lilo, I didn't yeah. know about rescuing. But, yeah. um, but they are such a personality, and I, I just love it when cats are really part of the family, mm. and they've got big personalities, and they're almost dog-like, which is, she used to play fetch. Oh. She was like having a dog, but I didn't have to walk her. It was brilliant. <laughs> I loved her. I loved her. She was the love of my life. And all of my friends and everyone close to me just thinking, oh God, when she goes, this is going to be, this is going to be hard. And it was, I was absolutely heartbroken. And but you, um, we well, mentioned that you were at Liverpool. Yeah. Because you went to drama school in I Liverpool. I did. I went to Macca's drama school, which was a great experience, but it's where during my acting degree I realised I had no interest in acting at all which was a bit disappointing um, after all that growing up on Guernsey just waiting to go off to London and just get my name up in lights and be a famous actress when I actually came to acting I was like no sorry not feeling it did you not Dawn you didn't it just didn't feel <sighs> just you wanted I, to be yourself. I like, wanted maybe. to be myself. I was always, I just, I really enjoyed acting. And I did, I really liked it. I really, I really liked it, but I was like, I don't want to make a career out of this. I don't, I don't know. I, um, I just, and then I would, you know, do some radio modules and do some radio hosting on the kind of student radio. And I'm like, this is it. This is what I love doing. And I, there wasn't much opportunity back then to write, which was always the thing I wanted to do, but it doesn't really happen during my university years. It was more about, it was a performing arts college. Um, but whenever I did things like radio or my friend and I, rather than doing a play, we did a TV show, a bit like The Priory, that old show that used to be on TV with um, Zoe Ball and Jamie Thixton. And we kind of created our version of it. And I loved that and yeah. presenting and talking and being myself. And as soon as I was given a script, I, I, I just would panic and couldn't, couldn't do it. But if someone said, just, you know, fill five minutes, then I could do that. So in your third year, you have to do a, you do a play and you are marked on it. And I just said to them, I'm so sorry, I just don't want to do a play, I'm not interested. So can I go down to London? And I got a job in a, a work experience on Bedeal and Skinner Unplanned with Avalon Productions. And I said, if I sort out this work experience placement and I can persuade the producer to mark me, can I do that instead of doing the play? And they agreed to it, which I thought was amazing, because I don't think they liked me very much by this point, which is probably why they agreed to it. And so that's what I did. And then that work experience placement led on to a runner's job, oh. like about a year later when I moved to London. And you, so you worked on, but it, you worked on Bedeal and Skinner on plan. Yeah, I was like, how was that? Because you know I do a radio show with Frank Skinner. Do you? Yeah. I didn't know that. On Saturdays, I mean, I'm absolutely, I'm his co-host, so I'm gonna, I will be telling him this. I loved it. I You've got to say so, that now, Dawn, I should no, have waited. No, I did, I, it was so <laughs> exciting. Like I was like, this is the environment I want to be in. I found TV yeah. way more exciting than the theatre world. And I just, I just loved the way, watching the way the programme was made. I was actually in the PR office, but they, that yeah. same company did everything. Yeah. So um, I thought Frank was one of the most impressive people I've ever seen. I was like, that, his ability to like, be on camera and be funny was so exciting to me. I loved the way that TV was made. I just found the whole thing utterly thrilling and knew that that's... I, I still had in my heart that I wanted to be on camera, but I knew that I wanted to, would be really happy behind the camera too. So 
that's when I started to apply for jobs in um, and then my next actual paid job was booking audiences for the Ruby Wax show um, for Princess Productions so you've and then I obviously first became aware of you you were a journalist as well and a writer and I remember becoming aware of you obviously with your documentaries on BBC Three you did a series of I felt you were kind of almost being pitched as the kind of female Louis Theroux yeah. at that point yeah it felt a bit like that kind of having these kind of immersive experience I found being a, called a journalist so awkward <laughs> because I was like I always I'm, I'm aware of taking a title that other people have trained for and I never called myself a journalist back then, but because I was doing documentaries, essentially, I suppose I was some sort of journalist, but I was like, you know, wearing ridiculous clothes and going and living as a thing. And it, of course, that is a form of journalism, but whenever anyone would introduce me as a journalist, I'd be like, well, okay, it's just a bit awkward and embarrassing. Just massive imposter yeah. syndrome. Did you feel during that period, because you did so many, pretty high profile, they became your shows. Yeah. And... You did things like, you know, you had to slim down the size zero thing, which I think, looking back, that was kind of the first time that I'd ever really been tackled in that way. Yeah. You know, that I remember as a woman being very aware of it suddenly and thinking, it was obviously fucking hideous what you were going through. It was. But that, that film just hit at the exact right moment. Yeah. Then after that, there were different versions of it on different channels. And I was just very lucky that um, mine was with the BBC and it was first and that I just had this amazing production team and it was produced so well and what I loved about that program was how funny it was but how yeah. hard-hitting the journalism was which I felt very uncomfortable calling myself journalist like I said but um but I just think it was so perfectly toned for the time um it wasn't like dun 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 big yeah. drama <laughs> but it was like these are these are like normal women who are being made to feel like they need to be size zero for what and let's find out where this is coming from and where is this problem why is this happening it was I really, that was probably still my proudest TV moment. I thought that film, for the time, was perfect. Now, you bring it up to modern day, there's loads of things yeah. that I wouldn't say now or do. I think one thing we did do is we skinny shamed and you know we did lots of things that now we know it, it wasn't balanced. But for, at the time, for what we knew and what we were doing, it was a really, really brilliant film and I was so proud of it. And I was so proud of the laughs and I was so proud of the, the hard bits as well. I got the feeling that you weren't altogether comfortable with that kind of fame because you were getting pretty well known at that point. Is that fair to say? I don't know if I, I don't know if I was. I mean, at the time, it was all it was all really fun, but I wasn't being I wasn't like being invited to celebrity parties or like being invited to any award shows or anything. I wasn't really outside of the. I mean, this thing about the world of documentaries is pretty grotty. Mm. It's really long hours on location, staying in pretty shitty hotels, eating mm. not great food, and you're working really hard. Hello, squirrel. Um, you're working really, really hard. So it didn't feel very glamorous. And the fame side of it, it was just before social media, and there was. Any, any kind of, but, but the internet was there. It was like, it was comments under things, but there was very kind of little interaction with, you know, people. But I feel like I just got, it was just this little moment where people could reach me, but not, but it wasn't, you didn't, I didn't feel famous. And I didn't, um... But I suppose what I mean is there was probably more 
scrutiny and focus on you. Yes, there was. Then I there mean, would be as a writer. Yes, definitely. I mean, there were people loved me and people absolutely fucking hated me, and it was like, oh god. Obviously, you know that not everyone's going to like you, but Jesus, people can be so mean, and you're like, wow. Okay, and people. I had a public email address at the time, which was on my website, and people would just. I had a really interesting situation where this man kept emailing me really, really abusive emails about how much he hated me, how fat I was, how shit I was at my job, but all the kind of stuff that really went in and it really did affect me. I was like, because what he was saying, it wasn't far removed. Like, he was kind of true, if that's how he felt. And I could see myself in, in what he was saying. And I was like, oh my God this man and he just kept emailing me and there was no blocking back then it was just I could just keep seeing these emails and um, anyway what he was saying really stayed with me and it was really nasty and then about a year later I still had that email address which I don't have anymore his an email popped up from him and I was like okay deep breath here we go and he just said I just wanted to say that I'm so deeply sorry yeah I never replied to him he didn't even know I ever got them but it had obviously been playing on his mind and he said, I'm so deeply sorry. My wife was leaving me. I was hurting. I was really unhealthy. I lost my job. Life was so terrible. And I saw you on TV. Look, I'm having a good time. And I just wanted to hurt you. And I am really sorry. And I replied. And I said, I read every single one of your emails. And every single one of them really hurt me. And I really appreciate you sending this one. And it was a real, like, and we had a back and forth for a while. And I was like, God, it, but it changed my, I was very lucky that that happened at that point in my career because it changed how I deal with people's yeah. aggression and negativity towards me. And I always, or most, most times, see it as that's their problem, not my problem. Yeah. If someone is, like, people might think not like it. There's loads of people on TV I don't like, but I would never write to them to tell them. When someone does that, they're actively... <sighs> it's not about you. I would very often, if I got um, trolled, as we know it's become called now, I would respond and engage, and every single time I did that, the, the correspondence would end up friendly. Yeah. People say, oh, I didn't know you'd see this. Yes, you know, they say, oh, I didn't think you'd read it. And I'm like, what the fuck did you send it for then? Or like, um, oh, sorry, I didn't, are they just apologising? I'm like, God, what made you? Anyway, I, I actually, there's a huge amount of sympathy to have yeah, the kind yeah. of people who go out of their way to send that yeah. message you know they, they that. always come through at like one in the morning no, or I like know. four in the morning you're like okay we're having a little bit of a rant you're not very happy and you're tired and, and it's not to say that people don't mean it you could really piss people off on what you do but it's just there's another to take the next step to write yeah. an, you know offensive email is, that's, that's, that's no, not just not liking a TV show that's deeper than that and yeah. so around this time you were, you went over to live in LA. I did, and that was for TV. Yep, I, that was um, around the time that I finished all those BBC shows. The BBC were being incredible and offering me so much. They were offering me shows and all sorts, and it was amazing. They're just saying, "What do you want to do next?" And then in swoops this producer called Simon Andre, who called me one night when I was sitting in my flat in London. I've got this show that I want to make for Channel Four called Extreme Wife and um, I'd love you to come and live in LA with me and make it and I'm like what primetime channel 4 show I'm like well that sounds absolutely amazing but then I had 
the BBC offering me basically whatever I wanted to do. And it was just one of those moments where BBC were saying, you can do whatever you want, it's a BBC Three, you can make it your channel, blah, 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 blah. And Channel Four was offering me a primetime show. And so I, should we walk across? Yeah, let's yeah. walk down here, good And idea. so I ended up okay. taking the, um, the Channel Four job and really pissing the BBC off. And just, I mean, they wouldn't talk to me. It was very personal and really ugly. <laughs> The BBC were amazing to me. They were only pissed off because I walked away, and that was—it was I was the one in the wrong, really. They didn't do anything wrong, and they were angry. And um, and then so I went and did my show for Channel Four, and then six months later, Channel Four ditched me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my god! I just—it was a real case of like. BBC aren't taking my calls, Channel 4 have said no, and I just, anyway, had two and a half years of being grotesquely unemployed. It was terrible. But it was in LA yeah. that you met your husband, I did. Chris O'Dowd, and he got in, I mean, I'm obsessed by the whole story, <laughs> but he basically contacted you as a sort of, you know, we're all here in LA, let's get together thing. Well, was he, he, he was act? writing to me on Facebook asking me if I wanted to go bowling. Um, his Facebook profile picture, and still is, 15 years later, is an old lady. And I, I'd never seen the IT crowd, I just knew it, was, it wasn't my kind of TV. And this guy, so I Googled him and I was like, oh yeah, all right, Chris O'Dowd. But I was dating somebody else at the time. and. Um, Anyway, he kept asking me out, kept asking me out. And then on the day of my 30th birthday, he asked me out and I said, no, I can't go out with you, but come to my party tonight and bring all your friends, because I didn't know many people. And, um, and he did. He, we danced and he turned up at midnight, was dancing with my dad. And Chris turned up, we danced and then he left. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, see, these are my new shoes. I, so I don't want to ruin your shoes. I'm gonna take them off. I know that's no, disgusting. Dawn. What do you think? Oh, look, Dawn. Oh, baby. Did you have a little drink in a bottle? It's like a Bear Grylls documentary, isn't it? <laughs> Us trudging through forgotten lands. The forgotten lands of wild, wild terrain. <laughs> Come on, Ray. Um, so yeah, you were telling me about Chris. So, and then, so Chris turned up. You, he was speaking to you on Facebook. Yeah. And then he turned up to your party in the end. You decided turned to invite him. Turned up to the party him. at midnight with his friend Ben. I just remember him walking towards me with his arms out and lumberjack shirt on and I was dancing with my dad, who's a tall, hairy Scottish man, this big, hairy Irish man walks in and I just remember thinking, I've been turning you down for the last month. I just thought he was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Oh. And, um, and yeah, he moved in with, into my little flat about three months later. God, isn't that lovely? Well, so six months later, actually. Prior to that, <laughs> yeah. had that, had you had sort of you know, a couple of long-term relationships, or had you been...? I'd had quite a lot of relationships, long-term relationships up until, like, my early 20s. Yeah. And then I was single for a good seven years before I met Chris. Mm. And um, so I'd been dating in LA for the year before, and just, like, dating in LA is awful. Everyone will tell you. It's such a strange town. Everyone... It's just... No-one's there to meet the love of their life. Uh, they're there to, you know, live their dream. So it's a certain kind of mindset of person that you're dating. And I was dating kind of older people who were, you know, lived in LA, but they were all mad. <laughs> and I seem like, I'd been single for a long time and dated lots of people and had a, I like, 
you know, I dated lots, but if I, I had reasonably good taste in men, I had good experiences. I was like, what's gone on here? Why am I like back to back experiences with men that I, didn't, I don't have any interest in? Yeah. So anyway, when Chris came along, I was seeing somebody else, but quite despondent. And so he said to me the next day after the party, oh, let's, let's go bowling again, this is his line. And um, I said yes, and then I messaged him again about half an hour later, I said, look, I can't, I'm seeing somebody else. And I, he's away and I need to um, break up with him before I go out with you. So I kind of took care of business over the next three weeks and then messaged Chris and go, I'm up for it, <laughs> let's go out, <laughs> which, was, um, which was great. And we went to an Italian restaurant and oh, no, he put my he put my satna my uh, address in his satna as he came to pick me up, and I lived like under a minute's drive from his house. So my walk of shame was fantastic and very easy. But I remember he um, the first time I left his apartment in the morning, holding my shoes, walking back to my flat, which was so close by, and he just yelled up the street, "Thanks for all the sex." <laughs> and I was like, "This guy is." <laughs> a real piece of work. <laughs> Are you quite when you because you might you know it sounds like you obviously had that real feeling. Yeah. Are you quite sort of um do you get frightened? Do you remember feeling frightened at that moment or do you are you quite calm, you know? You it's know quite that calm. thing I suppose what I'm saying is does it frighten you to be vulnerable in situations like no. that? No. I'm not afraid of being vulnerable at all. No, I was very, I mean, it was, what was frightening about that situation was he was coming off the back of a long-term relationship and really didn't want to get into another one. So I was more frightened that I was going to lose him yeah. um, than getting into the relationship. I just loved him. I just adored him and just was just desperate for him to feel like being single wasn't necessarily the only option after a long-term relationship. And it just took him a minute and then we got there in the end. But no, I, I wasn't afraid of it at all. I, I just met him and I was like... Uh, I'll wait and I will, you know, I just, because he just, he just took a little bit, he just wasn't quite ready. But it didn't take long. I mean, I was just so excited by him. I'd been meeting these guys in LA and just been like really oh, despondent. Yeah. And, oh, I think I'm just not going to bother anymore. And then this absolutely spectacular human walks into your <laughs> life and you're like, you're everything I love. You are funny, you're kind, you're so sexy. You are just, I love where you're from. I love everything about you. And, um, I just, I just wanted it. And you have got two boys, Art and Valentine. Art and Val. Great names, Thank can I you, say. thank you. And we need to talk about, which brings us on to your writing and mm -hmm. your book, because when you and Chris got married, what I love is that you've always admitted that there was a part of you that felt it was difficult. When you first got together with Chris, you went through a period you lost your confidence, you lost your mojo. I did, well that was all related to that um, when Channel 4 didn't renew that series and yeah. I was living in America and I just felt, I was just so sad. I really felt like, God, I've worked so hard for so long and it's all gone. And meanwhile, Chris was, had just got bridesmaids and was becoming like a global star. And it wasn't, there was, there was no competition between us. Like I told you, I've got no interest in being an actress. And it wasn't what that, it, was, it wasn't that that was upsetting. It was just, I was there for the first time um, in the rooms that I dreamed of being in, meeting people that I'd always wanted to meet, doing red carpets and living that life, and I felt like I didn't deserve it. I just felt like, I always thought that I was going to be in this position proud of myself, and I was in this position just being like, 
where people say, what do you do? And I, rather than say, oh, I've made all these amazing documentaries and done these things, I just was like, nothing. I don't do anything really. And I was just, oh, I just wish I could go back and give her a kick in the fucking face <laughs> and just say, just tell everyone what you've done. Because this is what my biggest lesson in life has been. It's the difference between fame and success. And that success doesn't go away. If you've had a successful period in your life, you're still successful for what you've achieved. Mm -hmm. And that when you're self-employed, the, um, you know, the scale of what is going well and going badly just changes all the time. Like That's where my, my relationship with trying to be well-known and just be successful really changed. And it was actually not it took me it's taken a long time to this, but what happened to me with losing my work and being unemployed for so long was the real blessing in terms of being a parent in this industry how hard I work like I work and I write and I write and I write and I know that writing is the book industry and what I is so loyal to me if I keep if I keep writing I will always be okay in TV you are so disposable and I literally got disposed of that's how it felt and for a few years there I clung on to it thinking if I'm not on TV, if I'm not a household name, then what is the point? What am I? And then over the course of that couple of years, you know, I got married, started to think I wanted a kid, I got my first book deal, and all of these other things in life became way more important than my need to be famous. And so then I became really, um, well, I, I worked for my success, which is to be in a position where I get paid to write and I now I just feel more successful than I ever felt when even when it was going really well because I always felt like this could end at any minute I don't have that feeling of impending doom anymore as long as I keep writing I'll, I'll be okay and it's such a fucking relief <laughs> honestly <laughs> I, it's just such a relief to it's, let go of that it's funny that sliding doors thing if you think back to how where you could be now, yeah. that you could be here kind of stressing, thinking, oh God, are they gonna, am I gonna have to have surgery? Am I gonna, I know. do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Because actually that probably is, you know, it's that stress of, oh, there's someone who's 28, who, what, why was she taught, why are they talking to her? It's yeah, well, I do believe, look, if I was on a really great trajectory, if I hadn't have taken the Channel 4 offer yeah. and I'd have stuck with the BBC I've no doubt that I would have had a really lovely yeah. career and that I'd probably be hosting a really nice show now on the BBC kind of age appropriate but, <laughs> but I would you know and it would have been right it was it was my it was my big bold decision but that taking that Channel 4 job yeah. took me to America where I met yeah. my husband where I now live my happiest life with my two children and my six pets or whatever there's four pets <laughs> and um and I'm like god if if I hadn't yeah. have made that what felt like terrible decision at the time, the rest of my life wouldn't be happening. Really sure, yeah. And so you can't look back on it. At the time, it's awful, but you look back on it retrospectively and you just see, no, it was all getting me to where I am now, which I wouldn't change any of it. And I love, in your book, she's an interesting, complex woman, the heroine. Aren't we all? <laughs> well, we all are, but we're not often, we aren't often in... In literature, mm. it's, there are complex heroines, but you know, there can be, I remember a friend saying years ago, she was told by a publisher, she's not likeable enough. She's not likeable enough. Right, yeah. And it's that, whereas what I like about this woman is that she's not 
in, there are there are complexities to her which make her complicated and a bit unlikable. Yeah. I feel you're very empathetic. I think that comes through the pages towards women who haven't decided to go down that traditional path yeah. with a partner, or husband specifically, and kids. And I, I'm interested in that because that's sort of what this character in some ways represents, is people who, women being treated as a bit other or feeling other or, or different, perceived as the cat lady. Yeah. Well, I think before I met Chris, I thought that I would be a Mia. I was, I never had, I was, I wasn't particularly romantic. I obviously, you know, considered the idea that one, one day I might get married and have kids, but I wasn't one of those girls who was like, that's the end goal. I always saw myself as being really successful. And back then that, you know, fame was a part of that as well. Probably single with a cat. I had that vision and then I always think it would be great. I didn't know if I wanted kids, it'd be great to just meet someone who had a kid. Cause you know that, and you know, it all changed when I met the man that I loved and I wanted him to be the father of my children and I got older and just couldn't wait to give birth. But back then in my twenties, I, I thought that I was going to be something else. So I love in my books writing mm. that character and how life could have been and how it could have looked. And, um, and it's fun. I mean, I, you know, no, Mia is not a likable person in the book, but you're root rooting for yeah. her. I've got so many female friends who probably aren't the like, most likable <laughs> characters, and I love them. They're a bit spiky, but they've got hearts of gold. And um, I love those kinds of women. Yeah. I mean, it was funny, actually, because I was thinking of it this morning, because I was on the tube coming here, and I had Ray on my lap, and was trying to do my makeup, and I had hair all over me, and then I was aware, and then I was trying to comb his thing, and I saw these women looking at these people, kind of looking at me, and I thought, oh my god, I am the cat lady. <laughs> but I think people who don't have animals think we're all like that, don't they? They all think we're a bit mad. I remember with Lilu, um, where I used to, because I used to stay, lived in so many different places when I had that cat, and she was an indoor, outdoor cat. Wherever we were, we would just, we, we would just fit in. But I lived with quite a few people, and um, some flatmates that I had once who just hated the litter tray. They hated the litter tray and they made me feel like I was the one that was using it because they were so repulsed by it. And eventually it ended up in my room. And I was like, I can't believe that I'm in a situation where I've got this litter tray in my room. But it was so much better than the horrible judgment that I was getting yeah. from her um, being, in the, being in, the, um, in, the kit, in the bathroom. And I was just, but I was so, Lilo and I were such a team. We were so in, like obsessed with each other that I didn't, I didn't, it was fine. But I was like, people who don't, Especially people who don't like cats. More people like dogs than like cats. People who don't like so. cats. People who don't like cats. I've, I've said this a few times this week, so I'm talking about this a lot, and I, but it's so true that people who don't like cats can't wait to tell you how much they yeah. don't like cats. And sometimes, when I was, back then when I was younger and my life evolved around this cat, which may or may not sound tragic, but oh, I was so, hello. I was so <laughs> proud of her. And so proud of the fact that I was had this healthy living thing that I was, you know, keeping alive. But people just love to tell me that they hated her. And so, it's interesting because to me, that can be. I don't think you can underestimate how vital that can be. Which again is the theme you explore in the book. Yeah. An animal can sometimes be a, a purpose. It oh provides God, totally. a purpose for someone, and actually, it's the reason, you know that you force yourself to get up in the morning when you're going yeah. through a tough time and 
Oh, that's why I wanted to write about pet grief because um, when Lulu died, my friends really rallied round me. It was well, it was the pandemic, and so they couldn't come round to me. But they, you know, friends were leaving um, gifts on the doorstep and just being so mm-hmm. sweet because they knew what it meant to me. And every time someone did it, I just felt so grateful. But I know that a lot of people don't have that, and other people don't acknowledge. Um, how how hard it is when a, when a pet dies. Honestly, I just um, with potato. I mean, I was out of commission for about two weeks after potato died. I just I was heaving, like oh, it, I was just an absolute mess. It was and Chris was too. We were absolutely torn, torn, torn in half. My kids. It was my first my kids' first experience of grief, and it was awful. And it still is. And I still find my younger my eldest uh, being very upset about it. And you know we we rescued two dogs, Meatloaf and Puffin, about a month ago. Oh, so are these your new dogs? Yeah, then? Oh, and they are. And, but you two, you're good at names. <laughs> good at names, yeah. You, you <laughs> two. Sorry, sorry, we're in the middle of recording something. Sorry. No, I just feel terrible. But yeah, Meatloaf and Puffin. Especially as I said, we're in the middle of recording something that sounded slightly grand. But I, I actually meant to say we can't. Talk we're doing to you. a podcast. <laughs> Did you, um, Dawn? I wanted to say as well, in your. It's kind of a memoir, it was a diary slash memoir that, like your life in pieces. Mm-hmm. I was in bits. I thought it was very moving the way you wrote about your friendship with lovely Caroline Flatt. Oh, yeah. Who I knew, obviously not like you, but she was made such an impression on me when I met her. And I just want to say I'm really sorry you lost your friend. Yeah, it doesn't get any better. I mean, it's just absolutely brutal. Um, she was just the funniest my funniest friend and um and I just I just miss her I just miss that energy I still sometimes I used to do loads of Instagram stories silly Instagram stories all the time and Caroline would always be the first person to write to me just I used to really love making her laugh and I just found it's such a strange thing but I just didn't do one for like eight months or a year after until I because I was like, what's the point? She's not going to see it. And I just felt myself just go like, what's the point in trying to be funny when it's not going to make Caroline laugh? That was a real, she made me laugh and I made her laugh and it was just a total joy in my life. And the gap that that's left, I know loads of funny people, but her laugh was my favorite laugh. And um, oh, I just miss her so much. I still, I'm close to her mum and sister now. We put a festival on for Caroline this summer, which felt really good to do something like that but it's I'm I'm still pretty angry and sad about the whole thing how do you sort of manage you know because as you say you've experienced bereavement and like all of us you must have days when life's difficult but you've got a you've got a sort of poise about you you're quite, you feel very self-possessed. Is that something... Do you think you grew up, had to grow up quite quickly, given had, what happened yes, to you? I had to grow up quite quickly and I had to look after myself. And I had to protect people around me. And um, I don't know, I've never... I feel like I've always been the same person. Like I feel, like, you know, when people talk about I used to be this kind of person. There's certain things that I'm not so bothered about now and don't care about, but... I feel like I've been consistently me. Um, I don't know why if I come across as poised and together, that's a really nice thing to hear. <laughs> um, but I, I, um, I am quite, uh, I do feel quite unshakable. 
I do feel quite, it takes a lot to, to kind of really rock me. And I think when something really awful happens to you, you know, two days before your seventh birthday and the worst thing that can happen, your mum dies, I do think it gives you a perspective. And when the worst thing has happened, you either, that either makes you or breaks you. And it didn't break me. And I think it's as simple as that. I just, um, there wasn't much else to lose. So I think it made me stronger. Do you think, you know, we talked about pet bereavements and obviously human loss and losing any sort of grief is, is triggering in some ways. It's what I get asked all the time about my mum. Like, when you had babies, did you think loads about your mum? And when, when, you have, when you lost Caroline, did it make you think about my mum? I don't, I don't think about it that much. I was so young, so triggering. I definitely think you, your nervous system holds on to things that you aren't even aware of. Yeah. And I, have a, I had a very visceral reaction to Caroline dying. It was very physical. I was roaring. I was, um, I, I you know, fell to the ground. Like, I was not in control of myself at all and that went on for a very long time and still I could I could go back there any second you know then when the pets die it was um Lila was a bit more gentle when potato died I almost was the same I was it was it was physical I, but I think that's normal or at least mm. healthy oh it is I and, think um, it's very I noticed when the queen died I was thinking why am I upset and then I realized why everyone was upset and it's like well I lost my sister I lost my both my parents, yeah. kind of all around the same time they all died. So what's interesting is that I realised, oh no, it was my experience of her with them. Yeah. It's not about her. No, totally, I had that same reaction as well. But mm. I, I think what, one thing that did, what has happened to me is I've kind of experienced grief as a grown-up. I, I, when I was younger, you know, I'd be disappointed by the grown-ups around me for not giving me what I needed, and it's made me sympathise with them so much more. Like, they lost their sister their daughter and I had no emotional intelligence to understand what that meant and so when I would feel disappointed that um, look at me I'm the one who's lost my mum I didn't have sympathy for enough sympathy for what they'd lost and you know losing Caroline made me realize what losing someone as an adult feels like well as you know well it is it's I don't know what's better. Every, whenever anyone's mum dies, it's the most awful thing. Is it better to not know them well or to have a lifetime? Like, what's the perfect yeah. situation? There's none. It's all fucking awful whenever it happens. In many ways, I don't have that dread. <laughs> and, um, you know, it made me the person that I am. And you've got all these, all these kind of weird, like, retrospective benefits to experiencing something like that when you're younger. Um, but obviously, it's also a total disaster and changes the course of your life. Grief is... We're so, our, our culture is so terrible at grief and how it shatters us. There's just, it's that, you know, there are cultures in the world where death is celebrated as like a, a part of life, but we, we're so bad at coping with it. And it's the one thing that we know is guaranteed that you cannot get through life without experiencing it. Um, most, hopefully, you know, with other people before yourself, but it's just an unavoidable thing that we are completely unprepared for every time. And it's just like, why are we so bad at it? And what I find interesting about it is the more you experience in it, like when you have experienced grief, it goes inside of you and it will never leave. And when you experience it again, it gets almost like stacking up, it stacks up, it stacks up. For me, I can live 
my life perfectly happily yeah. with grief inside of me that doesn't mean that I don't feel it all the time and it doesn't come out but it's just it's not it's not stopping stopping me um, and I've had some pretty big ones so but I still think at the time like the best thing you can do when it happens is just like be physical fall to the ground get it out like feel it as much as you can and that's your best shot at living with it I think yeah I want to put his lead on yeah do because we're getting to the end of our walk and honestly such a good boy I've loved our walk dog. Oh, I know I loved it too it's so nice did you enjoy it yeah it's just I mean I love walking dogs so much I love it when you do it with somebody and have a little natter I just wish that Meatloaf and Puffin were here so they could have they so could have wowed you with their gorgeousness. I think I do. You think they'd get on with Ray? Yeah, they get on with all dogs. They're lovely. Two little rescues. I say, I swear, they say thank you every day. It's so cute. Well, Dawn, I just want to say thank you so much for walking with us today. You're so welcome. Congratulations on your brilliant book, which thank I you. honestly really love. Thank so you. thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dawn. Thank Will you, you say sweetheart. goodbye to Raymond? Bye, Raymond. You are an absolute joy. You're so sweet. It's been a joy. We're definitely hair twins. You're adorable, and that was a real pleasure. What a good boy. Bye, Dawn. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that, and do remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.